Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. We have the privilege, even the joy, this morning of opening it up and to glean from it. This is the word of life. And you've given to us lives to live, and we want to live them according to your truth. And each passage is important, and this one is today, especially as we take our time to focus on it. Help us to understand, help us to find application that we might live for your honor and your glory, and to live in, in a way that uh, corresponds accurately to your truth. So we submit ourselves to you at the beginning of this time in our service of gleaning from your word, and ask that you might do your mighty work in our hearts. You've already sent out your word, and it will not return to you void, but it will accomplish what you set it out to do. And, and we pray, Lord, that uh, that will especially be true in our lives today. Thank you for it, and thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in Romans chapter number 8, working our way through this beautiful, wonderful chapter. You'll notice I'm not in a hurry. Uh, I love, love this chapter in God's Word. Romans chapter 8, speaking of the security of the believer. And we started this January the first week. We're now in June. That means we've plowed on for six months already since we started this study. And this is what I call an intentional study. Intentional. See, far too often, I'm afraid, we live in some sort of doubt. Maybe not a huge doubt, but just enough doubt that you wonder at times about your relationship with the Lord. Maybe you have certain days that just seem to make it a little harder to understand that He loves you. That he has done these things for you. Sometimes maybe you've thought this, that based on what you've done, it changed everything. And now you've got to somehow make up for that and figure out how am I going to get back what God has done. The truth of this passage in Romans chapter 8, nothing in this chapter says what you're to do. It all says what he has done. And that's the beauty of his kind of security. His love is constant, folks. His grace is sure. And sometimes we doubt. I know that. Sometimes we wonder, have I really been saved? Am I truly saved? Am I confident that I'm going to step into heaven someday when I leave this earth? There's, you know, we have those kind of doubts. Uh, it's easy to doubt, I think, as human beings. It's very easy to doubt. Especially, and primarily, I would say, due to the fact that death has this very dense curtain around it. And we can't see on the other side. We can't see what it says. We have to trust, don't we? And add to it another element that makes life even a little more challenging is that there are so many different religions out there and voices out there all speaking about their way to get there. And, and you just want to be sure that you know what you know. That you have the truth before you. So our study is intentional. That's my point all the way through this. Uh, over 30 years ago, this chapter in Romans, chapter number 8, set in concrete my faith. And it was quite a shaky thing before that. But God gave me confidence in this chapter, and I love to talk about it. And I think you've caught on to that by now. I love to talk about this chapter. So we're actually on sermon number 18 already. 
of Romans chapter number 8. And it just happens that we're starting with verse number 19. That's where our focus will be today in Romans 8, verse 19, all the way, well, I'm going to say 225. Don't let that alarm you, but that's the context, all right? It says in verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, we, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adopt, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. All right, how'd you do with that? That's not an easy section, is it? Not an easy section at all. We're going to work through this, and you know it's going to take more than one week. Um, but this is what I like to picture, if you will. Uh, sometimes people will, will try to explain the Christian life and all that pertains to our, our existence as believers in like a house with various rooms in it. You've heard illustrations like that before. I'm going to launch that a little higher. Let's talk about a palace <laughs> with all kinds of chambers in it, all right? Because I like to think of Christianity is more than just a house, it's a palace. Uh, but picture all these different chambers that you can enter into and explore and understand better. Uh, when we have talked about God's security for us, we entered first the chamber of the past in verses 1 through 4, and we found that we were secure there. Because it starts off right away, there is now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Excellent words to read to start off. That chamber has been very encouraging for us. And that was the first four verses that we entered into. Then we went into the chamber of the mind in verses 5 through 8. There's probably a thousand more things that could have been said, but we pertain just to those verses here. And we talked about the fact that even in that, the Lord has secured us. Then we entered into the chamber of what I call true living. True living from verse 9 to verse number 13 about how we live according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. And you folks have heard that for a year and a half already because we dealt with Galatians 5 before this. And so we dealt with that and we found there's security in that too because the Holy Spirit is in you. And I find that to be very encouraging. So that chamber, we found that security the Lord is giving to us here. Verse number 14, starting in there to verse 18, we've been talking about that relationship we have with God himself. And the beauty of that being sons of God, how the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and we're heirs of God, we're joint heirs with Christ, and how can anything compare with that? We've gone down into that chamber too. And that we found to be very, very encouraging as well. God has, has been over, 
over and over again, showing us about his great work on our behalf. So we're going into another aspect of this, this great palace of Christianity. This chamber we enter today is called the future. And maybe it's the one that has some of the biggest issues for us. Because when we talk about the future, we have questions, don't we? But we also have fear. Chronophobia. The fear of the future. Thought, well, that sounds easy enough to remember. Chronophobia. The fear of the future. I found this interesting article, if I could turn my notes. This very interesting article. It was in Psychology Today, and I'm not a reader of Psychology Today, just so you know. It found it on the internet, November 2010. This, this lady is writing this article, and it's entitled, How to Enjoy the Fear of the Future. I said, well, that was intriguing, just the title, and so I wanted to read a little bit about it and see what she had to say about it. She was talking about a crisis that most people face. Usually it's, it's the idea of, well, I don't know the future, and, and I don't know how to correlate that to my present life, and it's got me in fear. And uh, some people will call that somewhat of a crisis. She's going to argue against that a little bit in this argument. But she says these crises uh, come about because they can't answer basic questions, like, who am I? Or, what purpose am I meant to fulfill? Or, what will it take to feel content? Maybe you've asked those questions. She says, stir those questions up with an unstable economy, and it feels like breakdown is just around the corner. That was 2010. Seven years later, I wonder if the breakdown's already here for some. She goes on to say this, and I'm going to read some of this passage, and then I'll make some comments in between, and you know which one are mine, all right? She says, in my research with high-achieving women, I found this identity disorder. It can surface at any time. Even if life is stable, the confusion doesn't feel good. The urge to know about your life, what your life is all about, and to know your life's direction leaves you feeling uncertain about the future and discontent with the present. Just when life should clearly provide you with answers, you feel lost. It's okay to question your life's purpose. It's okay to say, I don't know who I am. You aren't in crisis. You don't, have a physical, you don't have to physically move to experience the next stage of life. In fact, it's better to sit still and reflect. Take advantage of the pause. Here it comes. You ready? Most of us look too hard to find a unique, profound, and tangible reason for our existence. Instead, she says, seek to discover everything that makes you feel alive and connected right now. You know what she just did with that one phrase? She dismissed everything of the future and everything that you wonder about the future and what purpose you have and said, why don't you go have a bowl of chocolate pudding? It'll make you feel better. Literally, listen to the words. First, you know there is a difference between having a life purpose, which is a specific tangible destination, and having a sense of purpose, which is a feeling that provides you direction any day. Choose to find a sense of direction over a destination. It can make your life easier. 
you can feel quite, uh, you can, you can quit feeling disappointed with your life or afraid about your future, basically, because you've ignored it. When you release the need to know how your life will turn out, you live for a feeling instead of a goal. Do you know where this is going? Live for the present, folks. Don't worry about your future. Live for the present. That's the goal. And so I'm thinking, okay, what do we do? What do we do? This is what she says. You appreciate what sparks your love, your gratitude, your laughter, pride, and, and awe instead of losing those moments on your to-do list. First, you need to have a sense of purpose, that which feels like to you. Savor delicious food is her first idea. Of course, we all have our comfort food, don't we? So go have a bowl of chocolate pudding if that makes you feel better. I'm not even going to read the rest of the article because this is her answer to the future. Dismiss it and live for the present. Now, let me ask you this. Is that the Christian choice? Is that what we're talk, talking about in Scripture? Oh, dismiss the future, live for the present. Not at all. That's not what we do. Matter of fact, we have a tangible destination, don't we? We know where we're going. That's not our crisis. That's not our crisis. I think our biggest challenge is, how do you live in light of what you know today? How do you do it? Well, that's why I like Romans chapter number 8. Because it is talking about the future, but it is what applies to the living here and now. This is how we get by. This is how we understand. This is how we move forward. See, God is not deceiving us. He has told us, your life's but a vapor. That's short. Down here, short time. Eternity set in your heart. Says those words as well. And we do have a destination. And because we do, we have a purpose. And we do have a direction that helps us with living right now. That's the important thing I believe we set in our thinking today. Because here's what I, I, I have noticed it, and I bring it out, and I say it often. Those who set their minds on things above have a clearer view of the everyday. Set your minds on things above. Colossians 3 tells us that. We're to do that. And when we set our minds above and what's ahead of us, we understand better where we are today. Teaching Paul to drive. He's the last of them. I mean, I've gone through the whole list, and so far most of them are pretty good drivers. Uh, but I do have this advice I always give them, and he's heard it, so this isn't anything new. When you drive, you don't look directly over the hood. You don't just look, you keep your eyes right in front of you there. You set your eyes down the road. Why? You see the little critters heading across the field? You know they're going to join up with you down there. You see them ahead. You see the turns coming up. You see the cars coming up. You have to have a focus ahead. And you know what? It's amazing how straighter you drive when your eyes are up there than it is right here. Scripture says set your mind on things above. Why? It makes this life easier to keep its course. We have all kinds of verses. And really, I'm... All that is just to prepare you for this chapter <laughs> and to prepare you for this paragraph here this morning because I want to talk about our future. 
And our future is not vague. Our future is not unknown. It's in God's word. And what is fascinating in this passage, you heard me read it, and you followed along, and you said, oh, pastor, this looks like a real tongue twister here. What is this all about? Let me give you it this way. Verse 23, I believe, is the key to the paragraph from verse 19 to 25, where he says, we ourselves, having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Mark that as the center of that paragraph. It's very important because everything else goes around that in order to teach us what Paul is saying there. I may not get very far into this passage today, but that's where we're going. That's going to be our emphasis. That is our key to this uh, chapter before us. But what is necessary is to look at the pieces that are around it today. The big picture. The big picture. It helps to, to unravel the passage, if you will. Paul is clearly using creation in order to teach us about our security in God. In this section here, creation does tell of the glory of God. I mentioned that earlier in the service today. The expanse does declare the work of his hand. That's more than just a sunrise, folks. It's, it's more than just a mountain or even the Pacific Ocean, which I saw last week, and it was beautiful. God's handiwork in creation is much like a million object lessons about his character and about his activity. We learn about his faithfulness morning by morning, new mercies I see. We learn about his forgiveness in terms that says it this way. He has cast our sins away from us into the depths of the sea. He separated them from us as far as the east is from the west. He uses terms that we understand in order to describe concepts that are bigger than we are. And I like that about his word, because it brings it down to the level that we can work with. J. Vernon McGee used to mention that the cookie should be on the bottom shelf where the little hands can get to them. All right? Maybe that's what we need to have here, too. But can we learn from creation about our future? Paul says, absolutely. That's what he's doing here. Uh, you'll notice, as we read through this passage, there are three words or phrases that pop out. Over and over and over again. The word creation, obviously, is one of them. Or if you have the King James, it's the word creature would show up there. It's the same Greek word. Creation and creature comes from the same source there. There's the word wait eagerly. That little phrase, to wait eagerly. It's been said in three or four of the verses that we're looking at. And the word hope. Hope is also in our passage. And so creation is set up to illustrate for us in this passage the importance of waiting and hoping with expectation. Now, here's my definition of the word hope. I've told you this maybe before. Hope is confident expectation. It is not American hope. Like, oh, I hope so. <laughs> we use that one all the time. We're talking about a confident expectation. That is our hope. 
And that's, a, that's my term. That's a biblical term to me, is confident expectation. We're not, we're not basing our future on ourselves or basing it on God's word, and that is sure. It will not change. He's made his promises, and he keeps them, right? So we ought to be confident. And since he's told us what's coming, we should be expectant. Our hope, then, is confident expectation. We wait for it because he said it's coming. So that's the word I'm going to use as we go through here when we talk about creation and waiting eagerly and the word hope. Now, you've noticed this, perhaps, as I read through it as well, verse 19 through 25, that creation is personified in the passage. That means it's given things that normally we don't attribute it to things of creation, like rocks or badgers or even wheat fields. We don't talk about them groaning. <laughs> we don't talk about them having pain. We don't, we don't talk about them waiting and such like that. Um, but that's a personification in the passage where this illustration is going to take on some characteristics that we're accustomed to. It helps us understand it better. All right? Now, creation needs to be defined just, defined just for a second here, too. I have all kinds of uh, wonderful sources, and all of them with all their ideas of what creation means. Um, I could give you the, the nitty-gritty stuff if you want. No? All right. Easy stuff. Uh, the easy stuff is that, basically, we're talking about a creation that is what we call the natural world around us. We could talk about animals, we could talk about trees, we could talk about rocks. Now, some of the scholars say, omit humanity of that picture, just talk about everything else, because that's a contrast between Christians here, and some even go further than that, but I won't go that far at this moment. I'm just talking about anything that's of the natural world. Trees, rocks, badgers, wheat fields, you name it. All right? um, they're given attributes. Verse number 19, they are anxiously longing. That's an interesting term to use for creation, anxiously longing. It says they're waiting eagerly in verse number 19. It says they are, well, you know, implied here, they're looking at us. Because they are waiting eagerly, it says, for the revealing, that's the term for looking and seeing something, for seeing the sons of God. They're looking for something. Kind of an interesting term there, too. They are, in verse 20, subject to fertility. Uh, fertility. Futility. Futility. Not according to their own will, but they've been subject to futility. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But they're subject to it. They have a hope. It says in verse number 20 at the end. There's a hope there. Because they long to be set free from the slavery to corruption. They're just as tired of decaying and molding in your refrigerator as you are that they do. They don't want to decay. Creation does not want to be in the decay process. It's corrupted. And it's in slavery to that corruption. And it groans, verse number 22 says. 
It groans, it suffers the pains of childbirth. Now, you've never equipped, put that in the concept of grass growing, have you? This is not the first time God has given personality to creation, by the way. Trees clap their hands. It talks about the deep calling to the deep. I love that little phrase there. It talks about rocks crying out. Even Hebrews chapter 11 has that very interesting verse about the walls of Jericho fell by faith. And if you study it through, you say, hmm, that's an interesting phrase. But nevertheless, we find some interesting things about that. I think it's helpful to think such things and make comparison to our Christian walk and, and Christian truth to be uh, more evident to us, to help us understand them better. You see, this is not a sermon on global warming or some sort of a political statement or how to go out and hug a tree. All right? It's none of that. It's not at all. It's just a passage where creation is personified. It's personified. Its actions are set in its own dilemma, which is a very real dilemma, by the way, so that we could have confidence where we are right now pertaining to our future. Let, let me say it even better than that. Let's say our confidence excels that which is described for the, for the future of creation. It excels that because Jesus once talked about how God cares for the sparrows, right? And what was his comment about that? Are you not worth more than these? And if these God takes care of, how much more does he take care of you? So does God have a plan concerning creation? The answer is yes. And he will not fail. And I like that fact. That kind of answers an awful lot of political questions people have too. God will not fail in what he's done. Now, does God have a plan for you as a believer? Yes. And he will not fail that either. That's the big picture. right? That's what he's doing with this passage. He's making a comparison. And he gives creation its little personality side to it so we can grasp the concept and understand what he's talking about. So let's outline it just for a touch here this morning. And it talks about creation in verse number 18 or 19. Talks about creation as in nature animals. And yet it's longing to be uh, or longing for the revealing of us. I'm going to change the words. Sons of God, that's who we are according to the passage. He is longing for us to be revealed in glory. Now, isn't that an interesting thing? It's got its mindset on. It's waiting for us to be revealed in glory. It's anxiously longing for such a thing. But it's been subjected to futility. What is that? Futility is emptiness. Emptiness. It's been subject to emptiness. All right, Genesis chapter 1. You ready? Let's talk about what creation's problem is. Genesis chapter number 1, you have the creation of the world as God had it. And in chapter number 1, the very last verse is God's summary of it all. God saw that he had, what he had made, 
And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. That's his summation of it all. Very good. That's creation's stamp at the end of it. Now, chapter 3, you know what took place in chapter 3, don't you? It's the fall of man, sin. And we're not going through the story of how they did that, because we've read that quite a bit in our lives. But this is what's interesting to me. In verse number 14, the judgments start to fall because of sin. And the first one judged is a serpent. And it says in verse 14, God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle. And more than every beast of the field. Now, was the serpent alone cursed? Not in that kind of phrase. The, the, he was more. The serpent was cursed more than the cattle. Think of that next time you go out and take care of your, your herd. Cursed cattle. They were cursed. The animals understood the curse. They were under a curse as well. Every beast of the field, it says, was under a curse. And how do we know that? Well, even into verse 15, look at what's happened between just the woman and the serpent alone. There was enmity now. Not only enmity, but there was bruising going on too at the end of verse 15, right? Are those signs of blessings or curses? Something has gone really wrong here. And there's bruises going on, and of course that's a very fascinating and powerful verse, verse 15. But we're not going to go into the theological ramifications now. We just notice what happened. When he turns to the woman in verse number 16. I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Just the wording alone might suggest something. What was it like before? If it's multiplied now. I don't know, I wasn't there. Never experienced it anyway, can't help you. But I think that's an interesting term. Multiplied pain in childbirth. Verse number 17, he turns to Adam. And what does he say? Right in the middle of the verse. Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. You could almost hear the trees go, Oh! Can't you? The plants, they're now under a curse because of Adam. The trees are under a curse because of Adam. The animals are like, come on. See what you've done? All of them under a curse. The ground is under a curse because of you. What's the, what's the result? Verse 18, both thorns and thistles and onions will grow for you. Wait, onions aren't in there, but... It might be. You're eat by the sweat of your face. You're worked that way. You're eat your own bread till you return to the ground because you were taken from it. You are dust. You are dust. You can almost feel the groan in that, can't you? Now, every time God created something in Genesis 1, he says it's very good. He called it good. It was designed to be fruitful. It was designed to multiply. You saw those passages before when you read it. He, he created it for abundance. For abundance. 
Animals were especially to fill the sea and to fill the air. We don't know what abundance is like. We've never seen the design of God's plan for abundance for these plants. Oh yeah, sometimes we have great harvests, don't we? We sit back and marvel at it and say, wow, what a great harvest. Could you imagine what it was designed to produce? God cursed the ground. Nature. It had never known the opposite of abundance and blessing until that moment when it's thrown into a cycle of struggle and pain and limitations and its lack of being what it was meant to be. That's the world you're living in now. That's the world you're living in now. Creation was subjected to futility. Futility. It lives under limits. It's, it's where it's at. Well, the curse, I want to at least say this much. The curse, thank the Lord, is limited in duration too. That's not forever. Because if we go into the future, we talk about the second coming of Christ, we have so much undone that we're experiencing today. The millennial reign of Christ is absolutely phenomenal. There's great passages in Zechariah chapter 14, for example, verse 11. It talks about how the people will live in it. There will no longer be a curse. And he's talking about the New Jerusalem there where people would dwell in security, but it's fascinating. Isaiah 35 talks about it, even to the point where deserts are bringing forth plants and fruit and beautiful flowers and such. It talks in Isaiah 35, 1 through 7, or you could read that. Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, it talks about Christ reigning. And by the time you get to verse 6, you see a difference in this world around you. All the, the crops that produce and the blessing that's on the ground and such like that. Does it again in Isaiah 65, in verse 17 to 25. To sum all that up, you could go to uh, Dr. Ryrie's basic theology and get this little phrase. The curse to which the earth was subjected when Adam sinned will be reversed, though not completely lifted until the end of the millennium when death will finally be conquered. But it will be set free. It will be set free. Its limitations are now. But it will be set free. And you say, when? Well, that's when Christ comes. But let's put this in perspective now, because I want to put a believer in the picture. I want to put you and me in the picture as well. God has a plan for glorifying the believer. Do we not see that in this passage? We saw it especially in verse 18. We saw it in Romans 8. Verse number 18. This is the last thing he said. He says, uh, what is worthy to be compared? Nothing's worthy to be compared. Our present time, our present sufferings, not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. When we are here during the millennial period, and yes, we will be here, I believe that, because scripture says wherever Christ goes, we go with him. That's what his promise to us. So I believe we're going to be here. We will be glorified people. How do I know that? Well, by then the rapture has occurred. We have entered into heaven. We've been changed, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. We've been changed from mortal to immortal, from perishable to imperishable, right? 
And John tells us, then we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We will have been changed. We would have known at that point what it means to be glorified in its fullest sense. We would have been rewarded as well. 1 Corinthians 13, already taken place by the time we, we uh, have already gone into heaven at the time of the rapture. He will then lead us into our reward ceremony, which I like to call it. And then the marriage supper of the Lamb and all that takes place. Then we're reigning with Christ and we're returning with Christ. And we come down to this earth and the curse is lifted. And you're going to see something you've never seen before on this planet what it looks like the way God designed it to look like. See, creation is a testimony that God will keep his word. Right now, it's under a curse, and it's groaning under the curse. And you know what it's saying? Boy, I wish these Christians would hurry up! Well, that's an exaggeration a little. All right? But that's the idea. They're waiting eagerly for us to be revealed in glory. They're waiting eagerly for us for that next step that God has for us so that it can be set free too. It's waiting for that moment. And God will set it free from the curse. How much more do you think you would do for you folks? How much more? When we step into glory and we're set free from the presence of sin. Ah. What a glorious thing that will be. That's the outline that we're looking at here. Because verse 21 says, Creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, I haven't really discussed much about our side of all this. As I walk through this passage, I just wanted to set the comparison before you between creation's longing and groaning in its current condition. Going all the way back to verse number 18. There is glory coming. There is a future that God has that will happen. Creation itself understands that and is waiting for it. Now, if all that's true, and I believe it is, because it's recorded in God's word, can I not trust that? Can I not just take that and say, well, if creation believes it, Shouldn't I? Shouldn't I expect that too? Charles Gabriel wrote a song years ago. You've sung many, many times. Sometimes when we talk about deeper things or even difficult things, we, we get a little confused and, and sometimes we, we struggle with it. But that doesn't erase our hope, does it? When I talk about the glory that is to come, and you're sure of that, aren't you? That's a promise of Scripture. This is what Gabriel wrote years ago. He says, when all my trials and labors are o'er, and I'm safe on that beautiful shore, just to be near the dear Lord I adore, will through the ages be glory for me. You've sung it before? Try it again. Oh, that will be glory for me, glory for me, glory for me. When by his grace I shall look on his face, that will be glory, be glory for me. Heavenly Father,
there's so much, so much in this world for us to try to comprehend. It's a big world. But you're greater still. And as you have used parts of your word to help us understand some things, maybe, maybe we've got a better glimpse today. Maybe we need more shots at this one to understand it better. But it is great to know that you are our God. And you have made us promises and they will never change. And if creation is that sure of it, we ought to be too. Help us, Lord, in our grasping of such passages. But most of all, help us to live confidently, day by day, in the fact that you not only are at work in our present, but you have worked out our future too. We give you the praise for that. We rejoice in that today. In Jesus' name, amen.